Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ramdas Here and Now, another edition. And uh, before I get into it, let me just uh, prompt y'all about this uh, amazing uh, happening in Los Angeles on October 24th, 2021. And it's an all-day event. It's two events during the day and in the evening. And it's a celebration of the 50th anniversary of Be Here Now, the publication of the book, as well as a tribute to Ramdas. And we are going on almost two years since he passed. So we're going to have wonderful presenters like Jack Cornfield. Krishna is going to do a workshop during the day. I'll be there with Pete Holmes, Mirabai Starr, and Nina Rao will be there and others. And uh, we will be featuring, because this dome is this incredible, immersive space, and we are going to, uh, we've developed with a company called Trip, a wonderful film called Journey, a short film, like just under 10 minutes, that is, uh, replicates Ram Dass's mushroom trip that turned him on in the early 60s, and... Uh, that's going to be displayed on the dome alongside of some other films that we have that, uh, again, will go a long way to celebrating both Ramdas and Be Here Now. There's one, uh, it's actually a, a music video with John Hopkins and East Forest using Ramdas uh, talk, just an incredible talk. Uh, and it animates the uh, brown pages of Be Here Now. And then in the evening, it will be a concert with Krishnas John Forte, formerly of the Fugees. And Justin Beretta of Glitch Mob and East Forest. And Nina will start the proceedings with uh, her invocation. So go to ramdas.org slash wisdom. That's W-I-S-D-O-M-E. And you'll get all of the information and the lineups and the schedule. And uh, those uh, of you who cannot come because you're not in the vicinity, it will be live streams and you'll be able to register for free uh, for the live stream. Obviously, all based on uh, what you always have done uh, for us, which is continue to support these offerings through your donations which we very much appreciate. So, a big event, October 24th. That's a Sunday. And uh, as I said, if you can't join, just register for the live stream. Okay. So, this is uh, more of a um, Q&A kind of thing with Ramdas that we started with with the last episode of Here and Now. And this one is called The Mechanics of the Mind, and it's focusing, um, Ramdas is focusing on the appreciation for the trap of expectations and awaking from the entrapments of our mind. And he an answers question about diagnosing the root cause of our negative behavioral pattern. I'm laughing because of the ubiquit ubiquitness of that, ubiquity. He talks about historical versus ahistorical. There's another word that I never heard before. Hope that's a, a good one. Techniques of behavior change, honing in on the kind of meditation practices that can help us understand the mechanics of the mind. And um, he also talks about how therapy can be helpful. Well, now Ramdas was the first to really talk about mindfulness 
and uh, when he came back from India. And he used the witness. He did not use the term mindfulness. He used the term witness. And that was the beginning of how he talked about uh, not replacing and substituting old patterns for a new one, uh, but uh, the issue is that we have structures of the mind. And one of those is like simply, oh, we want to get enlightened, but then we get attached to them. So he talks a lot about just having a light appreciation for the trap of expectation. So this made me uh, th- think of uh, somebody who Ramdas was close to, and uh, I did. I have done a couple of wonderful podcasts with him, Mark Epstein on mind rolling, the other podcast that I do, and I, I remembered something uh, that he said, and that was in one of his books actually, where he talked about mindfulness, and. Uh, he talks about the, the original word in the language of the Buddhist time was sati, and that means remembering. I think this is such a great thing to recognize. So right mindfulness or right sati means remembering to keep an eye on oneself. So witness. Its opposite is forgetting or absent-mindedness, the kind of forgetting that happens all of the time when one is lost in thought. We all know that one. The distinctive quality of mindfulness is that it remembers. Once established in the mind, it remembers itself. A clear description of what is meant by sati might be presence of mind. I love that uh, description, actually. It is so apt and and so follows. I mean, Ram Dass talks about... Uh, you know, all the practices that we do are traps, and you use a trap to get rid of another trap, but the way in which you take on the second trap is with intentionality and consciousness, and you see it as a trap. I'm using this trap, while the first one you had learned so deeply, it almost seemed real. So really, there's a problem with mindfulness. That's why I love the presence of the mind. I love the term that it's remembering. So you keep going, oh, right, oh, right, okay, it's okay. And uh, But fixating on mindfulness, so the first thing that happens, uh, and the ego can't help, he says, but try to co-opt the process, right? This is a danger. Some amount of striving is important, but uh, as he uses this uh, simile, a shepherd who is too actively trying to control his flock can sabotage the entire effort. With excessive thinking and pondering, I might tire my body. And when the body is tired, the mind becomes disturbed. And when the mind is disturbed, it is far from concentration. And that's from an ancient discourse uh, that I've never heard of called Two Kinds of Thought. So just going back to the idea of ego, right? And that's what we're dealing with and how we, the letting go of that where the ego has this gigantic control. Um, And uh, Mark talks about the most important events in our lives from falling in love to giving birth to facing death all require the ego to let go. 
but it's not something the ego knows how to do. If it had a mind of its own, it would not see this as a mission. There is no reason for the untutored ego to hold sway over our lives. No reason for a permanently selfish agenda to be our bottom line. And that is a core, core uh, teaching and a core message from Ramdas, of course. Instead of focusing solely on the success in the external world, we can direct ourselves to the internal world. There is much self-esteem to be gained from learning how and when to surrender. So that's profound. And uh, the ins and outs of using mindfulness, and I, I love, again, the idea of remembering. Okay, And here we might use the remembering that permanently selfish agenda is not our bottom line, right? I think that's so great. And uh, yeah, Ram Das, you know, he explores the process of, awake- of awakening from the entrapment of our mind. And here's the next big, big suggestion he comes to, which is being with satsang and reading books from sacred beings can help give us a new perspective. He talks about how we do need structures of of mind to function, but we have to hold on to them very lightly. We need to play our roles so that we can meet behind our roles. And here's a quote from Ram Dass. Ultimately, the art is you need models to function in the universe. Models of mind, you need structures, but you hold them so lightly. You hold them so lightly. Uh, And uh, we have a tendency to be pretty self-serious about our lives and about every event. And uh, we've lost that little humor. Wow, this is incredible. Yeah, we need to get a little bit of that sense of humor back. And as he says, just lighten up from the self-seriousness. So great talk from Ram Dass, as usual. And uh, I will say no more. And just thank you for being here. And again, go to uh, ramdas.org slash wisdom and you'll find out all about this wonderful event that's happening on October 24th. And we shall see you next week on Ramdas here and now. How can we diagnose the root cause of a negative behavioral pattern? The root cause of? A negative behavioral pattern. And what bearing does this understanding have on rooting out the problem completely? Um, That question is concerning the use of history of historical versus ahistorical techniques of behavior change. There are therapeutic techniques which say, let's look for the cause of why you are unhappy and let's go back to find out what the root cause was, the way in which your father or mother was, the way in which your early experiences were. The other existential technique is to say, 
this is what we've got. And it's being reflected right now. Let's deal with what is going on right now. Let's not worry about the history, because that's then. This is now this, and let us change the way in which you look at the world right here. The power of historical techniques <clears throat> is mainly when there is a reliving of the early experience itself in such a way that there is an emotional catharsis that occurs. That is, there's an emotional release that occurs at that moment of reliving. To intellectually relive it doesn't do much. It just makes you very sophisticated about your neurosis. It doesn't necessarily get rid of much. You can give a wonderful story about your childhood. It's extremely difficult. I mean, a lot of the rebirthing techniques, a lot of the regression techniques are all designed to emotionally reawaken those early experiences in a way that you emotionally go back into it and come out of it from a different place. They are difficult to do, and I'd say the, the success rate is, I don't know, it's not astounding. I wouldn't even hazard a guess about it, certainly not more than 50%. That because the, that whole therapeutic technique focuses on that, when it doesn't work, it, the technique doesn't know what else to do, so it just keeps focusing on it and focusing on it and focusing on it, and it doesn't really go very far. <clears throat> on the other hand, when a person is ripe, one of those moments can release a huge amount. So there is a, a timing and a ripeness for that process of using historical data as a release mechanism for a behavior pattern. Now, if you just notice, I made it clear once before, I said it before, but maybe it didn't come through very clearly because it's such a subtle point, that the techniques, when we taught, when we follow the breath in meditation, we are focusing on the mechanics of mind, not the content of mind. When you follow the breath and a thought comes up of I'm unworthy or I wish my father hadn't done that, or, I mean, I was amazed when I went to my meditation master in Burma. The value of him for me was that unlike the meditation teachers I had in the West, who I could suck in by the fascinating way in which I related the content of my thought. See, in the West, I'm so charming in the way I present my thought that I could get anybody. And then I, I all, furthermore, I was Ramdas, and that was another added little thing. You know, I was a somebody. So 
But when I went to the Burmese master, he couldn't have cared if my, what my, my name could have been 463 for all he cared. And the content didn't interest him in the least. He was only interested. He, it was like he had one of those desks with little pigeonholes in it, you know, little compartments in it. And you would say, blup, and he would think, memory, plan, planning, negative sensation. Um, um, emotional state, positive emotional state. He had a set of categories for the way the mind was working, not the content of the mind. And I, at first, I thought, well, he's missing the essence. <laughs> and then I realized how seductive the stuff was of the content, and what I was getting from him was he was freeing me from the content and merely focusing on the mechanics of the way the thought form was working. And so when you go into those kind of meditation techniques formally, what you do is you undercut the whole way in which content works and you just get into mechanics and as you keep opening and opening and opening and keep dusting away the content without focusing on it, without getting seduct seduced in by its bottomless well of fascination, because we are all so fascinated with our own stories, you just start to get lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter until your mind just lets it go. And you say, but how can I let it go? I didn't understand it. How can I let it go? I didn't work it out. How can I let it go? I didn't cathart it. How can I let it go? I mean, I can't let it go. That's my personal history. I've told about um, how once, several years ago, I had all these boxes of memorabilia, and every time I moved, I'd always have the shipping company move these boxes of old pictures and old love letters and important documents. And finally, I was moving again, and I had just moved about four times, and each time it's just shipping and storing, shipping and storing. And I thought, why am I doing this? It's as if I'm holding on to my past in case I run out of the future. Because, because, because in fact, I never open the boxes. I just mark them and move them and store them and then collect more and mark them and move them and store them. And I thought, I don't need them, so I'll burn them. I'll throw them away is what I decided. So I went through them and I threw it all in the trash can. And I found myself in the middle of the night out going through the trash can. <laughs> Because I woke up and I thought, oh my God, I threw away the, and I'd go out and I was going through, I thought, so I thought, no, I have to burn them. I mean, that's the only way to do it. So I, I started a fire in the fireplace and I started throwing in these things saying goodbye and throwing it and I milked the drama, I'll never see your picture again and I threw it away. And then one of my rascally friends brought me a big stack of pictures of Maharaji, and he says, you want to throw these in? And I said, well, um, no, I still need those, still using those. And now if I look in my basement, I got rid of all, about eight boxes then, but I notice I've collected more, and I have another five or six boxes down there now, at least, besides the books. And... I'll probably have another burning. Because at both did I feel the sadness of losing my personal history. 
and also the lightness and almost a surprising lightness of I don't have that anymore. It's gone. It's gone. I'm free. I think all of us, when you look at people, you often see as like uh, St. Nicholas, you know, they're carrying this big bag of personal history. And they come in and they set it down and they're just exhausted. I mean, <laughs> God, this is who I am and this is who I've been and this is who my father was and my mother was and this is, oh, God. I mean, you sit down on an airplane and you just say, hello. And four hours later, the person has told you, they brought out Ollie, let me show you this one. And then I had this brother who, and then I had this, and they just, oh, you have this, let me show you this one. And it's, it's interesting. Everybody just keeps reciting their, they keep reinforcing their models of their own existence over and over again. Let me recite this one. Oh, no, it's my turn. So I think when you ask the question why, it's less interesting for me now than just how do you get rid of it. Not why it does exist, but how do I get rid of it. I'm less interested in why I am the way I am than how to get on with it. And much more I see where I'm going and I let it pull me towards it and I just keep discarding stuff even though I don't understand why I had it in the first place. So I, you can hear the predisposition. At the same moment, as I say, there are moments when you are so ripe to let go of something. I mean, I realized at one point that I was in, like, I was in a jealous rage over a relationship. Um, just imagine that. I'm sure none of you have ever been, uh, <laughs> except I've done interviews with all of you, so I do know. But I was in a jealous rage over a relationship and I was crying and screaming and hating and loathing and, and I, boy, I thought, this is really thick. See, that's a little cloud, a little blue sky saying, this cloud's really heavy duty. And I thought, this is such an old pattern, it's so familiar to me. And I can't, I don't have enough discipline in my technique yet to get around it. I need some help. And what happened was uh, a guy called me on the phone who the year before I had seen and he was such a mess. And he called me up and he sounded very light over the phone and I said, why are you so light? You were such a mess. <laughs> and he said, I've got this great Jungian therapist. I said, what's his name? <laughs> I said, I'm gonna go to him too. So <laughs> I went to him and uh, uh, what I, and we examined the situation, and then his mirroring allowed me to see some links, that, and I was so ripe for that at that moment that the minute I saw the link, something changed. And it changed for about two months. And after about two, three months, it, it, we had done what we could do at that moment, and what became apparent to both of us was that the work I had done on myself over the years, that I was a happier human being than he was. And then it became poignant 
I mean, I was paying him. You know, so we, I finally said, don't you think this is ridiculous? And, and then we just became friends. And that was that one. But there was a moment that was ripe just to see those things and get a mirroring for it and let it go. Questions? Yeah, this question's from the um, Mind Traps um, section of yes. the fear group. <laughs> Lovely group. <laughs> it's about substitution. How do we recognize patterns of self-deception, compulsion, or addiction? When we do recognize and try to change these, how can we avoid substituting an old one for a new one? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Is the search for enlightenment not yet another cover for our fear? Now, just now, when I was silent in response to that, my awareness went through a series of stages. I heard the question. First of all, in my mind, I repeated the question so I could make sure I heard all the dimensions of it. That was the first part about the attachments and addictions of mind. How do we get to see them? How do we know that when we do something about it, we're not just substituting new ones. Isn't the search for enlightenment another one? Those were the three major components of your question. Then I saw myself starting to think about the answer. And then I said, not deep enough. And then I started to empty. All I did was go back to my breath. The rising and the falling of the breath in the abdomen. This was all happening just now. And then pretty soon, the whole thing was empty. In other words, no more mind structures. Not thinking emptiness, but just not. Just, right? The rising, the attention to the rising and falling was still another one that I was using to get rid of the first ones. But as I kept going in, then I just went into the rising and falling, and then there was just... Then out of that came this. Okay? Now, this is another structure of mind. What I'm saying to you now is another structure of mind. Do you, you hear what I'm saying? that is taking what you said and reorganizing it. The issue isn't that I'm, that I have a structure of mind because we are, the only way of interacting in the universe is through these structures. The issue is where one is in relation to them and how tightly one's holding on to them. Not that one has structures. Take, for example, the structure of trying to get enlightened. Now, trying to get enlightened is a structure. There's a great little story I must read you. 
a young boy traveled across Japan to the school of a famous martial artist. When he arrived at the dojo, he was given an audience by the sensei. What do you wish from me? The master asked. I wish to be your student and become the finest karateka. Is that karateka? Yeah. In the land, the boy replied. How long must I study? Ten years at least, the master answered. Ten years is a long time, said the boy. What if I studied twice as hard as all your other students? Twenty years, replied the master. <laughs> Twenty years, replied the student. What if I practiced day and night with all my effort? Thirty years, was the master's reply. How is it that each time I say I will work harder, you tell me that it will take longer, the boy asked. The answer is clear. When one eye is fixed upon your destination, there is only one eye left with which to find the way. Now, the stance one takes to become enlightened is a trap. It's a place you are that is not enlightened. It's a, it's a stance in which somebody is going somewhere. I'll meditate. But as I told you the other day, the beautiful Ramakrishna image, when you have a thorn in your foot, one of the things if you're out in the woods you do is you take another thorn and you use the thorn to dig the first thorn out and then you throw both thorns away. You don't save them. So in a way, understanding that all practices are traps of the mind and you use a trap to get rid of another trap, but the way in which you take on the second trap is with intentionality and consciousness and you see it as a trap I am using. While the first one, you had learned so deeply, it, was, it seemed almost real. For example, most of the way you are thinking every day is so deep in, it feels like it's all reality. But as you keep doing the following of the breath, it keeps forcing you to see the way in which you are manufacturing the structure the habitual structures of your own life. And as you go deeper and deeper, you begin to see the little ways in which the mind keeps recreating your own existence. That happens in the deeper meditation practice. Now, once that is all loosened up, then you've loosened up the old ones that were so deep in you didn't even notice they were there. Then the whole practice of following the breath is just another one you're going to let go of. You don't want to end up just being a breath follower. You want to end up being free, okay? And what is important is that you have a kind of a, a light appreciation of the traps of expectations. As uh, Hans said to me the other day, he said, um, expect, expect the unexpected. It's a nice one. Always expect the unexpected, but that's still an expectation. And there's a great story of um, 
you know the uh, Sufi um, sort of wise being, wise man named Nasruddin, who's really, he's like somebody that's kind of slovenly and always kind of, seems like kind of stupid, but it's that incredible kind of wisdom that uh, he has, that the Sufis know how to do so well. And uh, Nasruddin was very unreliable and very undependable. And uh, he went to his neighbor and he said to his neighbor, um, I would like to borrow a pot. I'm having my relatives in for dinner and I need a big pot. And the neighbor said, now Nasruddin, you're very undependable and unreliable, and I really don't want to entrust my big pot to you. Nasruddin says, please, please, I promise I will bring it back tomorrow. I absolutely promise on Allah. And finally, the neighbor relented and said, all right, if you will bring it back tomorrow, I will give you the pot. Nasruddin took the pot, went home, had the feast. The next morning, he knocks at the door of the neighbor, the neighbor opens the door, and there is Nasruddin with a big pot. The neighbor says, Nasruddin, you brought back the pot. Nasruddin says, yes, of course. And the neighbor looks inside the big pot, and there's a little pot. And the neighbor says, what's the little pot doing there? Nasruddin says, the big pot had a baby. <laughs> so... Nasruddin was delighted, the neighbor was delighted, of course, and he said, oh, thank you, Nasruddin, and he took the pot, and he was so happy. About two weeks later, Nasruddin came to the door, and he said, uh, I'm having another party. Could I borrow the pot, the big pot again? Now, be now in the neighbor's mind, you see. The neighbor says, of course you can, Nasruddin, All right? <laughs> So Nasruddin takes the big pot, goes away. The next day, no knock on the door, no Nasruddin. The neighbor waits another day, no Nasruddin. Finally, the neighbor goes to Nasruddin and says, Nasruddin, where is my pot? Nasruddin said, it died. Do you see the way Nasruddin played with the mind of the guy? I mean, he sucked him in and then did him in. I mean, it was just uh, exquisite about expectations of mind. <laughs> hmm. In relation to the first parts of your question, I think most people are so entrapped in their mind that they don't even know they're entrapped. And that's the line of Gurdjieff that I quoted the other day. He said, you don't realize your predicament, you are in prison. But if you would escape from prison, the first thing you must realize is that you're in prison. If you think you're free, no escape is possible. It's a far out image. Most people do not have, they don't identify 
with the little blue space. They don't identify with the part of them that sees the predicament of the rest of them. They are just so busy being the reactive part of themselves with their righteousness and their fear and their determination and all the and their pity and all those kind of human emotions. They're so reactive and so it fills all the space and they never stop to reflect. They wouldn't think of meditating or reflecting. And they get up and from the minute they get up, as they wake up, their mind starts to run its numbers and they keep getting into the reactive thing. Oh, I've got to go to the toilet. I smell coffee. Oh, I've got to get up. I must remember to do my laundry. Oh, I forgot to call so-and-so. Oh, I want to sleep 10 more minutes. Oh, it's warm in that corner. What was I dreaming? And the mind starts and it just feeds this continuous like one of those hammers in the street. And it just goes all day until finally you just fall into exhausted sleep at night and then start the next day. And it's just mechanically running off and there's no space in it at all. So that I think what is required, first of all, is the beginning of what's called awakening, which means the recognition that you are in prison. That's what awakening is about. And that recognition has to come in some way where you got a little whiff of the fact that there is freedom, that there's something other than what you're stuck in. Now, you say, well, that's grace. It's grace to recognize it because in actuality, as I said earlier, everybody is having those experiences but most people's minds are so strong, they interpret the experiences that would show them that there is freedom, they reduce them and interpret them in terms of their prison model. So they say when they have an experience that would be transcendent, they say, I was out of my mind. That's a way of rejecting the thing. Do you hear that? Or in science, when you can't explain something, you say it's error. <laughs> that means I can't explain it. Once you begin to awaken, then you have a little bit of leverage from which to see your predicament. Now, one of the ways that you can help yourself is to by, is by connecting yourself with other consciousnesses that will mirror for you the ways in which you're stuck. That can be books, it can be photographs, it can be the sangha or satsang or the community of other beings who are attempting to awaken. Because once you start to begin to awaken, you start to see people in a different way. When you were stuck totally in your mind, you looked at other people totally in terms of their relevance to your need systems. Once you begin to awaken, you're able to meet other people on two levels. One is within your need system and one is that little bit of space around it. And the satsang or sangha or community is that is meeting those people in that little bit of space in the new perspective around the predicament of life. 
And then what happens is once you meet such people in books or pictures or whatever, you then ask them in one way or another to help you. Like when you take the words of Christ or the words of the Buddha or the words of Ramakrishna or Ramana Maharshi or, or any of the wonderful great beings that have lived through history who have made the mystical journey, their words, just reading their words, is like reminding you and showing you how stuck you are. It's mirroring for you your stuckness. And just sitting with that mirroring and sitting with that space and sitting with those friends who tell you you're stuck, that process is constantly working to dislodge your staying within the stuckness. And it's helping you start to let the stuckness start to lose its solidity and thus crumble a little bit. Of course, the problem is that the way in which you're stuck so fulfills your, your need for security because even though you're stuck, it's home. I mean, even your neuroses are familiar. You know, I'd rather have a familiar neurosis than be out there, you know, like flying. You know? So seeing your addictions of mind to this is who I am and this is how I, the world is, is not just, it doesn't just drop away because you see it, because there's still a lot of juice to holding it. There is a readiness for letting go of things. And it, the word that is used often is viragya or the falling away of worldly stuff. There is a place where you just, it isn't worth holding on to any longer. And you're then open. It often is required, there's despair involved in that. There's despair of finding yourself so trapped. And sometimes the despair is great enough that it opens a door for you. It is true that what most people do is that they substitute immediately a new structure to feel safe in for the old structure they got rid of. And the only thing you can hope is that the new structure will be, will be taken on from a place... See, most of the structures that you have about yourself and the world were developed in your preconceptual time, between the time you were, say, six months and 15 months old. That's when the, the basis was laid down for the whole game of your ego. And so they are emotionally learned structures. They are not conceptual. Initially, they didn't, the rational mind didn't mediate it. When you learn something rationally, you can unlearn it more easily than when something is learned emotionally, because when it's learned emotionally, you can't get at it. 
so that therapy has a very hard time getting to those extremely early learnings that happen, that which were laid down so powerfully. So what you're doing when you take on a new structure is you're taking it on conceptually, intentionally, and th so it is easier to let go of later. And then you use that new structure and keep moving yourself into the new structure. And then, like, when you have felt, I am no good, you then can feel, I am good. And you can use, I am good, to dislodge, I am not good. But then, I am good has to fall away, because that's just another place to stand, if you want to be free. Because free is neither good nor not good. Free is just free. So you get help from your friends, a little help from your friends, whether it's books or people or pictures or images. You cultivate the witness. You, uh, you, you intentionally take on new models in order to dislodge old models. A lot of traditions teach a model for looking at the universe and looking at yourself. And they let you intellectually learn the new model and then you keep learning it and practicing it and talking and practice talking from out that model and you're slowly substituting that model from the other model. Ultimately, the art is that you need models to function in the universe, models of mind. You need structures, but you hold them so lightly you hold them so lightly. Like when the great way says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. It doesn't mean that you don't have preferences. It means that you are not attached to your preferences. It's like, would you like chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream? Well, I'd like chocolate ice cream. That's a preference. I'm sorry we don't have any chocolate ice cream. Well, then I'll take vanilla ice cream. That's different from no chocolate ice cream. Oh my God. You know. It's done. As you cultivate that, um, that emptiness, that quietness, that place in you that doesn't have any models, that doesn't function in the world, it just is, and then you take on the functioning facade of models and preferences and all that you need to function in the world. But you, there's a place in you that sees it all as game or play or structure that you've taken on in order to function in the world. When I'm with you, I have to be somebody to be with you. I've got to be in a role. There's no way you and I can be together where it isn't mediated through role. Even though we can meet behind the role, we have to meet through the role as long as we are embodied. Can you hear that one? Is that too thick? Or? And the, the quotes in the Castaneda books that are quite fascinating, which Don Juan, who is a, uh, 
another wise being. He says it in a very fierce way. <clears throat> he says, a person of knowledge chooses a path with heart and follows it and looks and rejoices and laughs and sees and knows knows that his life will be over altogether too soon, knows that he as well as everybody else is not going anywhere, <clears throat> knows because he sees that nothing is more important than anything else. This is when you're sitting back in there. In other words, <clears throat> a person of knowledge has no honor, no dignity, no family, no name, no country, but only life to be lived. And under these circumstances, her or his only tie to fellow humans is controlled folly. Thus a person of knowledge endeavors and sweats and puffs, and if one looks at that person, the person is just like any ordinary person except that the folly of life is under control. Folly of life is under control. In other words, the mind models are intentionally taken on. They're not unconsciously, you're not stuck unconsciously with them. Can you hear that? Um, Mira gave me this uh, fascinating uh, set of letters that, that occurred between... Um, um, Bill Wilson, who was one of the uh, founders of AA, and Carl Jung. And um, what had happened was um, Jung had had a patient named Roland H., who was the founder of AA. And um, Jung had told Roland H. that his case was hopeless and that only a religious conver conversion could affect his addiction to alcohol. And to which Bill Wilson wrote, Dear Dr. Jung, this letter of great appreciation has been long overdue. Uh, it tells about AA, and then he says, um, I doubt if you are aware that a certain conversation you once had with one of your patients, a Mr. Roland H., back in the early 30s, played a critical role in the founding of our fellowship. Though Roland H. has long since passed away, the recollection of a remarkable experience, he remembers it as follows. Having exhausted other means of recovery from his alcoholism, it was about 31 he became your patient. He remained under your care for perhaps a year. Um, his admiration for you was boundless. He left you with a feeling of much confidence. To his great consternation, he soon relapsed into intoxication. Certainly that you were his court of last resort, he again returned to your care. Then followed the conversation between you that was to become the first link in the chain of events that led to the founding of AA. My recollection of this account is this. First of all, you frankly told him of his hopelessness so far as any further medical or psychiatric treatment might be concerned. This candid and humble statement of yours was beyond doubt the first foundation stone upon which our society has since been built. Coming from you, one he so trusted and admired, the impact upon him was immense. When he then asked you if there was any other hope, you told him there might be, provided he could become the subject of a spiritual or religious experience. In short, a genuine conversion. You pointed out how such an experience if brought about might re-motivate him when nothing else could. 
But you did uh, caution him that uh, these were comparatively rare. You recommended he place himself in a religious atmosphere and hope for the best. <laughs> then it tells about how he, in fact, did join a group and it did do it, okay? Um, and then this fellow's story about his thing. In his letter from Young, Dear Mr. Wilson, I had no news from Roland H. anymore and often wondered what had been his fate. Our conversation, which he has adequately reported to you, had an aspect of which he did not know. The reason that I could not tell him everything was that those days I had to be exceedingly careful of what I said. I had found out that I was misunderstood in every possible way, thus I was very careful when I talked to him, but what I really thought about was the result of many experiences with men of his kind. His craving for alcohol was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness. That's that same thing of coming back into the one. Expressed in medieval language, the union with God. How could one formulate such an insight in a language that is not misunderstood in our days? The only light and right and legitimate way to such an experience is that it happens to you in reality, and it can only happen to you when you walk on a path which leads you to a higher understanding. You might be led to that goal by an act of grace, or through a personal and honest contact with friends, or through a higher education of the mind beyond the confines of mere rationalism. Okay? These are the three paths that he's pointing out. I see from your letter that Roland H. has chosen the second way, which was, under the circumstances, obviously the best one. Okay. Just thought you'd be interested in that. You see, alcohol in Latin is spiritus, and you use the same word for the highest religious experience as well as for the most depraving poison. The helpful formula thus is spiritus contra spiritum. Thank you again for your kind letter. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.